Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson, and welcome to Season 2 of the Functional Health Podcast. I'm trained in both biomedical science and nutrition, and I firmly believe that a holistic and functional approach to health is fundamental to our well-being. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, from practitioners to professors and everyone in between. With this podcast, I will share with you their stories, their expertise, and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives, and providing you with simple tips and tricks to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Rob Lawson. Rob is a medical doctor and conventionally trained GP and is the chairman and co-founder of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. Rob is also the founder of a charity offering lifestyle classes and advice to patients with chronic health conditions. Today, we dive into the fundamentals of lifestyle medicine. So, without further ado, Rob, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Ben. It's always nice to to chat to, to fellow members. So, Rob, for those who aren't aware, can you please explain what lifestyle medicine is? I would describe it more as an approach rather than a discipline or specialty in itself. Uh, That in itself is a controversial viewpoint. However, um, in terms of definition, I suppose it's about the application of environmental, behavioral, medical and motivational principles to preventing, managing, and and reversing, hopefully, lifestyle-related disease. Uh, So, and that includes self-care and self-management. That's one way to look at it. I I tried to explain this on one occasion at a public meeting, and someone says, well, what does that actually mean? Um, And so I said, well, it's a bit, this is a bit of a cliched analogy, which has been applied to other areas, but I tend to use the dripping tap analogy, uh, yes. water dripping into a basin and, and all the water spilling up onto the floor and all of us in the National Health Service in particular going around and mopping up all the water and people have forgotten to turn the tap off and, and lifestyle medicine is about turning the tap off and it's dealing with upstream problems and I think that, that uh, analogy seemed to to meet their requirements. They understood that much more easily, I think. Yeah, I think that's an excellent analogy and a great way of explaining it. Now, you've seemed to be arguably ahead of the research in this field and you've practiced these lifestyle medicine principles since 1991. When did you become aware of the benefits of incorporating lifestyle medicine into clinical practice? Well, I think that the the, the benefit—that's well, a hard one to answer, actually, in terms of a timeline. But in terms of lifestyle as medicine, uh, that didn't occur to me until I was clearly uh, in my uh, years as a student. But uh, as a, I, I grew up abroad, as it happens, um, but I was sent back to my home country, Scotland, for my education from the age of ten. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, and uh, my grandparents. Um, One or two little sayings sort of stuck with me. One of them was, um, a stitch in time saves nine. Uh, You know, prevention better than cure. And that that kind of intuitively felt right. And so why would I not take that into my professional career? And slightly to my surprise, during my uh, formative years at university, I don't think prevention ever came up. It was never a subject that... uh, 
that uh, certainly I was aware I was being taught. Uh, so it wasn't easy to learn at the onset. And the only opportunity, if you like, of being able to put it into practice was when I became a principal in general practice. So, yeah. so that, that was, uh, and that takes us back to, to when I started in general practice, really. So it was when I started in general practice that I became more aware of how it could be applied in practice. Right, okay. And what were the first kind of um, applications of that? Did you advocate uh, more dietary approaches or was it exercise-based? How did it start? Well, it started uh, in, in an area where uh, I was, felt I was in slightly firmer ground, and that was through, through physical activity. Yes. Uh, it, it started um, principally because of a need locally where I live, uh, that people who had heart attacks, and in those days people had heart attacks seemingly quite regularly and often, um, that uh, the, the old idea of you, you just go to bed for 10 days was beginning to be challenged. And I think <laughs> there was enough evidence around the world that uh, rehabilitation uh, after a heart attack was actually quite important. Um, and so I uh, recognized fairly early on that my patients simply didn't want to either engage and certainly didn't want to engage with a program that was over 20 miles away in Edinburgh. Uh, I, I actually practice in East Lothian. So it was uh, that understanding that people didn't want to make that journey and perhaps didn't quite engage with the process involved in rehabilitating uh, after a heart attack. So it was that, um, the other, other critical thing I think was uh, yes, uh, exercise is, is good, uh, especially to rehabilitate cardiovascular-wise. Uh, the, the next important thing really was the, the supportive mechanisms that arose out of providing that service. I knew I couldn't really sustain it within my practice. I tried on a one-to-one -one and quickly recognized that that wasn't really going to work very well. Uh, and eventually, the only way I could uh, develop that uh, was to form this charity that you mentioned right at the start. And, and that really uh, was the the start of it all, if you like, of Lifestyle as Medicine before it became known as Lifestyle Medicine. Fantastic. Thank you very much for explaining that. So 28 years ago, diet wasn't even really taken too seriously as a clinical tool, never mind other lifestyle habits. How accepting were patients and I suppose your colleagues um, of these new principles when you began to use them? Uh, well, I think that the, the only principle that they could see I was using was uh, evidence-based. I mean, I think that, uh, it was accepted that uh, uh, cardiac rehabilitation in particular, which is how it all started out, yes. uh, was uh, accepted generally. Um, however, they, uh, I, I think it, it largely still applies in large areas uh, that uh, the, the physical activity aspect of it uh, was seen as a lifestyle choice and was not part of what uh, doctors and GPs should be involved with um, and, and that to a large extent uh, meant that I was an outlier uh, and the only way I could uh, proceed was to do this in my own time uh, outside of, of the practice. Uh, the practice did uh, give me an hour a week uh, of practice time to, to, to spend on it, but uh, obviously all, almost all the time was in my own time. So I, the, the short answer to your question is that it, it wasn't widely accepted and still isn't widely accepted enough. 
that uh, the benefits of physical activity in that supportive environment, which I was creating for patients, uh, was uh, much more important than almost anything else that we did in our surgery. Right. Is this in part the, the idea that it's not very widely accepted? What inspired you to start the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine? It seemed a natural next step. You know, I think that I reached the end of my career uh, in general practice. Uh, the last few years I found really difficult. Uh, I could see uh, what uh, lifestyle was doing to people, uh, just not, not just as individuals, but collectively at community level and beyond. Uh, and I suppose I became even more frustrated, but not only uh, because of my colleagues' attitude to it, but because of patient attitudes that uh, uh, I was... Uh, shaken, I would say, by, uh, on one occasion, a patient uh, had been to Thailand to have the sort of total body screening uh, that they do over there for a pittance, and they came back with three diseases, or so he said, right. and four different uh, 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 drugs. <laughs> so uh, I, I had to untangle that, and uh, in the process, of course, I mean, I knew he smoked, he, he drank to excess, he was greatly overweight, he never exercised. Mm -hmm. And when trying to begin to get around to addressing these uh, subjects, he, he uh, went and complained to my partners that uh, uh, I wasn't taking him seriously, um, and that uh, all I seemed to be caring about was uh, his lifestyle. Uh, so I, clearly that was a failure on my part to understand that I wasn't engaging with him, uh, but it also underlined, I suppose, the gap uh, between conventional medicine and lifestyle medicine as I was trying to practice it. That the conventional end would focus on specific metrics, whereas lifestyle medicine was trying to deal with the upstream causes. Uh, and uh, so that uh, link, if you like, between public health and conventional medicine was uh, exposed at that point by a singular patient. Uh, and that um, uh, made me realize that, well, when I retired, I wanted to, to practice uh, this style of lifestyle as medicine. Uh, and the only way I could do it was privately. So uh, I actually put all my pension money into a center, uh, which I uh, had uh, built effectively uh, in my own patch. And uh, it had you know, about 29 different health providers. It had a, a cafe where you had healthy meals. It had a shop that sold uh, healthy food um, and uh, had a gym and so on and so forth. <clears throat> so it was a wonderful way to work. That sounds uh, fantastic. It, a really well, integrated it, it, uh, center. It was, and, and uh, yeah, I loved it. But uh, unfortunately, my money ran out, so uh, I had to close it. <laughs> Um, and the realization then, of course, that, well, actually, in our healthcare system, something like that uh, has to be uh, approached rather differently. And, and I was clearly idealistic. I'm not a businessman, and it didn't really work out. But in terms of delivering lifestyle medicine, it was fantastic. So the question then was, well, okay, this hasn't worked. How can we make it work in our healthcare system? And that's uh, uh, when, effectively, in my head, that this notion of uh, getting the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine set up, collect, collecting all the people around the country who are increasingly understanding the value of it, to create this community, to allow uh, an education platform to develop, and then the influence to develop out of that. And that, that was the, the start of it. And um, I had one or two colleagues who clearly got it, and, and together we said, well, let, let's, let's just do it. Uh, and uh, 
Uh, it started from there. If I can go back just a little bit, during uh, my time of setting up the center, I struck up a, a friendship with, uh, with Professor Gary Egger, who's uh, uh, from Sydney. And he's, I would say, the father's, one of the fathers, in a way, of lifestyle medicine. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had been very encouraging about the center and was talking about how in Australia they wanted to do this. And, and when it uh, when I began to, to feed back to him and think, look, this isn't going to work, he said, oh, we should maybe be thinking of doing something different. And he told me that he'd been in America at a conference. And as he was passing a doorway, he stopped and listened to one of the presenters. And that presenter was... Uh, uh, somebody called doctor, uh, well, he's a, not a doctor, a medical doctor, Nofsinger. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, he um, was talking about this thing called shared medical appointments. Now, right. the, he, we were talking about this, and then I, it suddenly struck me that I had been actually participating, I had been running shared medical appointments uh, in this rest of life program, or the, 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 the cardiac and, and pulmonary and so on rehab program that I had running. Mm-hmm. And I had never thought to, to transfer that into my daily practice. Uh, and uh, so we began to, to develop this idea of shared medical appointments. And it struck me that that was the way in for lifestyle medicine to get into our healthcare uh, arena. We needed to, to present it in this format uh, in, uh, in the National Health Service. GPs, as a GP, I could not spend that hour I was spending with patients uh, in the you know, in my centre, I couldn't do that in normal general practice. So, how could we get the benefit of that time translocated, if you like, into general practice? And the shared medical appointment seemed to be the perfect procedure within which we could do that. And and that's why I then set up this thing called the Shared Medical Appointments UK, uh, and that gathered together uh, people who could see that there had to be a different way of delivering healthcare in, in this country. Uh, and that uh, that was a precursor to the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. That was a, an intermediate step, if you like, uh, before I set up the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine as a charity. Uh, I don't know if that that's a bit rambling, uh, no. but I hope it makes a kind of sense. <laughs> no, I think it does. And just for clarification, those shared medical appointments, is that getting a group of patients together which have a similar medical condition and then lecture or not lecturing, teaching them about lifestyle medicine principles and how to implement them? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it can be anything you want it to be, really. It's a bit of a chameleon, but effectively, yes. It's about uh, people with chronic conditions in particular. That's where most of the research is. Uh, so people have... I, I hate to uh, label people with conditions. I've always had an aversion to that. Okay. Uh, and uh, it, we, we are people for... First and foremost, we're people uh, that happen to have maybe one or two conditions. And that's the clue, really, is that we very rarely just have one. And if we understand uh, where uh, the chronic conditions are arising from, we realize that actually a lot of us have a lot in common, irrespective of the particular label of disease that we happen to have attached to us. Uh, So this seems to be a way of getting into uh, dealing with broad areas of lifestyle medicine, which affect almost any condition, well, certainly the chronic conditions and 80% are reversible or avoidable ones, mm-hmm. uh, it gives an opportunity to direct uh, people into um, lifestyle behavioral changes uh, which will improve their condition. And this seems to me to be an ideal way of doctors and healthcare professionals to deliver on that. 
Yes. And you, you said the, the term there, healthcare professionals. Does that mean that the the lifestyle medicine can be advocated for by dietitians, um, other allied health professionals, or is it primarily Absol for GPs? No, no, I, I'm, I, I absolutely think it's, uh, it's part of the, the wider healthcare approach. And uh, GPs clearly are very important in all of this because mm -hmm. on average, uh, we see our patients four or five times every year. So uh, people have a culture of going to the GP. So they're very, very important. Yes. But within the GP team, uh, you cannot actually apply lifestyle medicine principles as an individual. It has to be a, a team approach. Uh, so as a GP, I need uh, people that's, with skill sets that I don't have uh, to help the patient forward. And uh, uh, I, I certainly foresee, and the reason why BSLM is developing its diploma, uh, which is uh, open to healthcare professionals from degree level up, we're also developing a lifestyle medicine health certificate, a coaching certificate for others. So those that are pre-degreed, uh, uh, pre um, if, if you could put it that way. Yes. Um, and that includes uh, personal trainers and, and, and others uh, who have an interest in, in people's health. So I'm rather anxious to get this across the board, uh, not only into primary care, but into the secondary care as well. Um, simply that we have a means of transmitting to, to patients that there are actually choices that they can make. And it's not just a question of take this pill and everything will be fine. Yep, and I think that's a fantastic outlook. outlook. Like if everyone's, I suppose, um, singing from the same hymn sheet, if you will, then this message is only going to get across quicker, that you can prevent diseases through these lifestyle medicine principles. Out of interest, um, what, who, why should people get certified? What is this um, lifestyle medicine certification giving people? Well, I think that it's, uh, the most important thing is that you know I, I may have called myself you know a lifestyle medicine practitioner or whatever for thirty years in my head. That's what I thought I was, and I know from speaking to others they think so too. But it's not until you begin to stop and, and spend some time on this that you realize there's a lot to it. And there's much more to it than people realize. Uh, so in order to, to try and get a benchmark uh, to achieve, a, if you like, a standard uh, that can be applied globally, it seemed entirely appropriate to go with the Lifestyle Medicine Diploma Certificate that the International Board of Lifestyle Medicine has brought into effect as of last year. Yes. So I think that uh, if we want to uh, get that benchmark, we want to set a standard, we have to have that qualification, I think, to offer. So that if someone comes to see me, at least they know that I have reached a certain standard. Okay, we're still feeling our way in that respect, uh, but it seems to me to be a higher standard than I thought when I started out. And that's uh, actually, to me, that's very reassuring. Uh, and I already feel uh, a sort of an affinity with my fellow diplomates in that we've been through the same stuff. Uh, we know that we're kind of talking the same language and that we're singing from that same song sheet in a way which uh, was just guesswork before then. Um, one thing I would like to get your opinion on is from your experience, do you think prescribing lifestyle medicine can help in all chronic conditions or is there certain ones which you'd say it can't? I would say that uh, there's almost a, 
I can't think of very much. It can't be helped through mm -hmm. making changes uh, in uh, lifestyle and, and approach. Um, I know that they say that you know 80% of chronic diseases are lifestyle related, but if you think about it, a lot of the, even autoimmune diseases, um, you know, there has been an epigenetic switch that's been shown at some has, has been thrown at some point. And so, what were the conditions that were in place that allowed that to happen? I, I can't help but feel intuitively that if you optimize the environment, not just the external environment, but the internal environment. That maybe that epigenetic switch will get revolt, go back to default, and, and the disease will go. So I, I like to think that um, it, it has a, a global impact on health, not just on long-term diseases or lifestyle-related diseases. However, I think lifestyle medicine as a discipline is is fixated quite correctly. I think on the reversible lifestyle-related diseases. So I don't want to step too much out of line there. No, I completely understand that. But I guess, I suppose, stress management is what, is what I'm thinking of there. I can't see anyone who won't benefit from just reducing their stress levels through whether it be a mindfulness approach uh, or meditation or even a more active form of stress reduction like yoga, qigong, tai chi, something like that. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I think that the there's no doubt that the drivers of modern disease include the presence of cortisol coursing around our system. So yes. uh, stress reduction is important. I think that the driver of, of disease, uh, of chronic disease, uh, I'm completely sold on Otto Mischligil's work in, 90, in the late 90s, um, where he showed that uh, metabolic inflammation was uh, a trigger for uh, inflammatory, uh, chronic inflammatory disease. You know, that we have clear uh, paths to identify an acute diseases uh, where the the the, uh, the causative agent is, if you like, and th and that's the, uh, the the actual bug, the micro the, 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 the microbe or bug or bacteria or virus or whatever. We know that that is the the cause, if I can put it that way, mm -hmm. of acute infections. So, what is the equivalent for long-term and chronic diseases, lifestyle-related diseases? Well, um, I think that, uh, that what, what I bought on. On fairly quickly, it was Hotter Mischigel's work and, and Gary Eggers' application of this word called anthropogen, that he equates the, the, the sort of causative agent in, in acute infections being uh, a virus or bacteria or whatever, an infectious agent. The equivalent in chronic conditions is this thing called an anthropogen, which is a driver of metabolic inflammation. So right. if you look at the the drivers of metabolic inflammation, then stress clearly is is uh, very important and one that has to be addressed. You're absolutely right. To, to put this into context for people, when treating mildly ill patients, maybe they're just borderline hypertensive. In the current system, can you use a trial period of complete lifestyle change be before prescribing a patient with a blood pressure lowering drug in this instance? To be honest, I think it's something that every health professional should be doing. <laughs> uh, to, to a large extent, it's a question of uh, almost giving permission yes. to people uh, to do it, to feel you know, liberated to, to do this, that yeah, it's empowered. okay to do this. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I think that we're so driven by guidelines that people are treating them like tram lines. And, and I think that's not really appropriate in the clinical situation anymore. Uh, and more and more people are understanding this, and, and that's uh, which is which is wonderful. And I think that uh, this notion that you head straight for a pill, uh, 
you know, has to change. And, and this is part of what we're trying to, to achieve, I think, through uh, the Society of Lifestyle Medicine. Uh, as far as someone with hypertension, for example, is concerned, or mild hypertension, first of all, I have trouble with understanding the measurement of it. You know, that if we measure blood pressure, uh, cuff uh, blood pressure, um, at any given moment, it will be quite different, you know, 15 minutes later or even a minute later or half an hour later. Yes. Um, so, you know, just coming to that, that diagnostic label itself is problematic for me. Um, so I think that, uh, that that helps me to, to start that discussion and to start the conversation with the patient about ways in which if they are concerned about their blood pressure, how we might be able to reduce it. And that conversation starts at that, at, at that moment. And certainly a prescription uh, pad is, is certainly nowhere near the desk at that particular moment. And I guess part, part of me, the reason for me asking that question is purely because I don't think many patients or potential patients are aware that this is even an option. Maybe they go to a GP who isn't trained in lifestyle medicine but don't know that there is, um, I, don't, I hate to use the word alternative, but another avenue where you can go to someone who is trained in lifestyle medicine and get another approach based on lifestyle and not always pharmaceuticals. I think it's extremely empowering for, for people to know. Yes, indeed. And uh, the more people, and I think that in this digital age uh, and internet age, people are becoming uh, more aware than they ever were before. Uh, I, I've never been naive about this. I think that uh, I'm perfectly aware that patients who uh, in my conventional uh, role as a GP, people were coming to see me. Uh, they were bound to have been going to other practitioners. You know, I think that it would be silly to expect them not to. Uh, and as the uh, internet um, opened up, then I think the nature of the transaction, if you like, of the, uh, of the consultation began to shift. And I think that people perhaps have been quite slow to, to recognize that, that largely... GPs in particular, I feel, have become or should become much more architects of choice for people. Uh, that uh, in the past it was fairly you know, didactic and, and it was a doctor as the, the senior partner in anything that was going on. Now we have to accept, well, what is your knowledge about the condition that you suffer? What, is, what are your worries? What matters to you? Mm -hmm. And then let's work with that. And that means that as doctors, we have to be much more aware of what the options actually are. And I think that uh, that's where I hope the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine will begin to uh, help people come to terms with options that they can be advising, knowing that it's mainstream uh, and that it will make a difference. Yes. I think you've touched on something again really important that kind of holistic view of a patient's well-being as well not just their um symptom or their illness or condition or whatever you'd like to call it but that they are just they are they are a person absolutely yes i think that an understanding that uh, there are things going on in their lives which are driving whatsoever is going wrong uh, in their lives and, and that they have the capacity to change it uh, or we have the capacity to change it together as a, in, a, in partnership. Yes, I think that's a great way of looking at it. One thing which has come up quite a lot, Rob, recently is that we, we've seen a rise in depression and mental health conditions. Unfortunately, more people are willing to talk about their struggles with mental health than ever. I know exercise seems to have 
a profound beneficial effect on mental health when performed properly and at an adequate intensity and duration. Have you found in clinical practice that other interventions or lifestyle medicine interventions can be useful in these instances? Well, I think that this actually, to some extent, is not something that has been dealt with terribly well in general practice. I think that in, uh, as soon as a sort of mental health issue is discovered, you either reach for the prescription pad or you refer on to somebody else. Uh, and the somebody else is usually, uh, you know, involves a six-month wait or longer yes. uh, for, for counselling. So I think getting an understanding of, of again, starting this conversation, you know, of what is driving this change, perhaps, in mental health, and getting an understanding of the, what's causing it or maybe associated with it with the patient and getting the patient to hopefully come up with some light, light bulb moments themselves to get an idea of, why they might be the way they are, and what then the options were to, to change that. So I think that if we can shift the conversation away from uh, the objective signs, if you like, to potential causes, uh, we can make a difference. And I, I can't at the moment see how that can be uh, dealt with uh, primarily with a GP in 10 minutes. I think that's mm -hmm. not, not easy. So I think that um, the, the, the acceptance that our, our mental health and our physical health are completely intertwined. If we accept that, then within our primary care, immediately within our primary care environment, we need to have the capacity to signpost fairly quickly into an area where uh, the individual will benefit, whether it's from uh, being in a yoga class or Tai Chi or, or joining a counseling group or getting CBT or ACT or, or or, or seeing a clinical psychologist for some reason or another, uh, dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. You know, we, we need to have uh, that team, if you like, uh, into which we can plug uh, timiously. I think that the, the way in which they've approached mental health up until now uh, has been a huge frustration. There is absolutely no point in uh, missing that opportunity or, or actually making a real difference to somebody's health, mental health, if you then send them out the door knowing that they won't be seen for another six months. I mean, that clearly is, is uh, you know, that's, it's, not, it's not on really, is it? So we, we have to be able to, to tackle that. And lifetime medicine principles and understanding the sort of drivers and, and the causes and associations, at least to, again, come back to this notion of starting the conversation. And as a lifetime medicine practitioner, knowing to whom to signpost that individual yeah. as, a, as a colleague to make a, a quick, uh, a quick input and begin to bring change to that person's life. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, the thing with mental health conditions in general, it doesn't matter which one you are looking at, they're multifaceted and they're caused by multiple different problems. And therefore, the likelihood is they will need an integrated approach to help manage or overcome these issues in the patient. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that it's, it's true to say, I, 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 I'm I can only speak about my own experience, but I think in terms of psychiatric illness or mental health, um, the, 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 the trend is to go straight to prescribing drugs. And I think that um, often more than one drug, um, and that, that seems to me a, a sort of almost a, an admission of defeat. Um, and I think that uh, that needs to be challenged. I'd like to see uh, a, a systematic 
uh, approach to uh, mental health, which is available within every primary care facility. Uh, and that team uh, and integrated approach clearly is, is uh, hugely instrumental in achieving that. So, yes, I would agree with you that it's uh, an area where we need to be spending much more time on. Uh, and that, as a, a primary healthcare physician, we don't have the time. So let's use the assets locally in our community, uh, which can make the difference. I mean, there are integrative models out there which are funded by the NHS. Dr. Vanita Patel, I spoke to you recently, and she works as a, a paediatrician in a team with a family therapist, a, I think it's a personal trainer, and I think it's a psychologist. And they work together with usually normally low-income families in the 98th percentile um, of obesity rates within London. And they mm. work together with that family over a year to help mm. reduce their obesity and, and completely change their lives. And I think this approach, if possible, I know the capacity of the NHS is unfortunately diminishing, but these kind of approaches in a mental health scenario, I could only see a huge benefit there when tackling these conditions. There's no reason why. I think that uh, that, that it, we can't, within the NHS, have a labour-intensive approach. I mean, the capacity within the NHS is, is limited. And uh, this is one reason why we've got the hashtag one change uh, yes. campaign going to, to reduce the, the burden, if you like, of, of chronic disease and specifically uh, on the National Health Service. Uh, but in terms of mental health, there is no reason why in the context uh, of group consultations, as we now call them in England, you can't uh, bring that integrated approach into play. Uh, as uh, in this uh, approach with a one-to-one -one clinical encounter in, in the presence of 12 to 14 other people, you also have a facilitator, somebody who's, who's running the group, but you have invited guests or invited important people and why not have a psychotherapist there? Why not have a psychologist there? Why not have a physical activity instructor? Why not have uh, you know, a pharmacist and so on and so forth? Yes. Uh, it's, you have that uh, capacity within that way of delivering healthcare uh, in a way which is doable. Uh, it's not, um, uh, as I said, it's not so labor intensive. Uh, and uh, to that extent, uh, a lot of the, the benefit comes from the patients themselves. You know, it's between, it's the sort of in, the peer of impact that has greatest impact. So, as a health professional, the, sadly, we may not have as much impact as we think we do. Uh, put into that environment of a shared medical point of group consultation, suddenly the realization that the power lies in the patient and the patient's friends and colleagues and other patients in the room. So, I think that in terms of mental health, there's absolutely no reason at all why uh, that approach uh, wouldn't work very well and at the same time integrate into uh, external community assets in the way that you've just described. So in lifestyle medicine in general, more research is coming into how stress reduction can help numerous different ailments, how exercise can be beneficial for cardiometabolic risk, depression, etc., as well as nutrition. Nutrition is constantly evolving. Um, how do you see medicine evolving I suppose healthcare evolving as more research and more acceptance is happening in this area. Well, uh, if you've got half an hour, I'll, I'll start. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, some years ago, uh, I was asked, in fact, by the Royal College of GPs locally to, to write a, a, 
a, a piece called The Next 20 Years, and, and I called it The Rise of the Patient, uh, and came up with 10 things beginning with C that needed to be put into place. Um, I, I don't think it'd be sensible to go through it all, but I think that... Um, Is that available the, to everyone, that article? Well, I, I mean, I can send it to you. Uh, it's... Uh, uh, it, it, it went down like a lead balloon, I think, uh, generally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but if you but, like, uh, I can share that with the listeners. That that would be no problem at all in the show notes. Well, I, I, you know, it was just my opinion, and I'm willing to share it, because it, 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 it answers that particular question. Um, and and the, uh, there's no doubt that um, it, it requires a change in approach and a change in thinking. Um, and, and one of the items was cradle to coffin care, um, that uh, we have to, as a society, uh, try to understand, well, what is it we want the NHS to provide or society to provide in terms of healthcare? At what point uh, you know, do we go back to, to Bevan's choices of whether he went for a sickness service or a prevention service? You know, the, the landscape in health-wise has changed substantially. And so we need to change how we deliver healthcare. Uh, one of the things that struck me uh, was uh, Estonia, that they have an electronic health record, which they brought in, I think, in about 2008. Um, and 90%, uh, as I understand it, 90% of their country uh, have uh, health cards now, and 50% or more are using them online. Uh, and this gives a sort of real-time... Uh, access to, to health records, uh, which uh, can be utilized to uh, individualize, if you like, uh, healthcare advice. So uh, I think, again, to use thinking of the, the, the future, this seemed to me to be a, a very sensible way and not that expensive. I mean, I think I've worked out it's going to cost seven pounds a head or something. Um, it's a very inexpensive way to begin to introduce this notion of self-managing care of being interested in one's care uh, to a population at large. So, so that um, is, is clearly important. The, the pharmacogenomics is an interesting one. Uh, this acceptance that well, you know, drugs in one size fits all doesn't make sense really. Intuitively it doesn't make sense, but that is kind of this blunderbuss management that we have at the moment. It's never felt right. Uh, if there's going to be a, a, a you know, development in that area of personalised medicine, I can see that, that that you know I can see that that's a good thing to be to be involved with. I think that um, as I said in, in, in my piece that there's a warning has to come with that. Uh, and if you've read Peter Gutch's book, uh, Deadly Medicines and Organised Crime. Uh, how big pharma has corrupted healthcare. Uh, you don't really want to give the pharmaceutical industry free reign, uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think it is part of the future. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, lifestyle medicine never wasn't part of the future. Uh, it's just it's only now beginning to to rear its head sufficiently that people are recognising that what we were doing before maybe wasn't having the effect we thought it was, and we should go back to the future and learn the principles of lifestyle medicine all over again, just in the way that Hippocrates wanted us to put yes. uh, medicine into practice uh, and hopefully then make a difference to the long-term care uh, of our country. How important is the integration of healthcare professionals as it pertains to lifestyle medicine? 
Well, again, I, I would probably go upstream thinking about medicine as a whole, but uh, yes. I think that I wouldn't use the word integration of healthcare professionals. I'd use uh, the, the sort of pragmatic term, I think the collaboration uh, mm -hmm. between healthcare professionals. Okay. I think that absolutely has to be has to be fostered. I think that what should be integrated is the healthcare for the patient. So I think that if we are collaborating in order to integrate the healthcare and get um, uh, proper care to patients, then that is very, absolutely very much the right direction in which uh, we should be traveling. So I think that um, it is important, yes. Uh, I would love to see the distinction between primary care and secondary care and tertiary care and uh, third sector care rubbed away completely. I think it's, a, it's very artificial. It gets becomes a barrier for the patient. And if we can get, uh, apply a more systems-based approach to health, you know, all of that will become unnecessary. Uh, but again, that's kind of revolutionary. And uh, the way things work uh, in this country, it's one step at a time. And often it's a question of let's shift the, the deck chairs around the Titanic rather than <laughs> let's you know, let's think freshly about uh, where we're heading in the 21st century. That is a great way of putting it. Now, finally, can you provide the listeners with three actionable steps to help improve their health and well-being from today? Well, again, that's a, an interesting one. I'm sure uh, people will have their views. I, I would say the first thing is to stop. Stop and smell the flowers. You know, uh, you've heard that saying, yes. or stop and smell the coffee or whatever. It's really just to, to reflect upon uh, where you are, where your health is. You know, what are your health goals? And I think that that's, that's the first thing I would suggest. Then, of course, and you'll not be surprised to hear me say this, that maybe you could make hashtag one change at a time towards achieving those goals. <laughs> You know, I think that it's, uh, we have to make changes. We have to take more responsibility ourselves. Uh, I think that that's easy for you know, people like me to say, uh, but for people that need it the most, perhaps, it's not easy to make those changes. And we have to create an environment that allows that to happen in their particular environment. Uh, so that's number two, is, is, is make one small change at a time. And finally, the, the third one I would say is that once that new change has uh, become a habit then to go back to the first bit and stop and smell the flowers again and do a little bit reflect a bit more well where have i got to how long along the path have i got and what more do i need to do to make a difference to myself and i think that's there's that broad view i think that people need to it's an attitude if you like mm -hmm. it's uh, an approach that, that uh, i think needs to be looked at rather than the advice like you know, take more exercise or eat more vegetables or you know, don't stress as much. You know, these are, these are kind of useless sayings, really. It has to come from, you know, lifestyle medicine is about behavioral change. It's about moving from extrinsic motivation into intrinsic motivation. And that's where really the struggle is to, 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 to go from that extrinsic motivation into the intrinsic motivation. And learning how to do that is a help of healthcare professional and then and, and trying to impart that to patients and, and so on and so forth i think is is critical to the success uh, of lifetime medicine thank you so much for sharing that with us rob i'm sad to say i'm going to bring this recording to a close but i wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show i really do appreciate your time 
Ben, it's been a pleasure, and thank you very much for asking me. And, and I hope in there somewhere there's some sense. <laughs> I, th- I think there <laughs> certainly is. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook or our website and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support. 